2: Hello and welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. I'm Brady Huggett, and I am the host of this podcast. So, our guest today is Harvey Berger. Now, we recorded this podcast before the the ICLUSIG news broke, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll I'll briefly explain. Iclusig is ARIAD's first approved drug. Um, it was recently pulled from the market due to safety concerns, and this caused Ariad stock to tumble. Uh, The company had to reduce its headcount and reduce spending. All of that happened after we had Harvey into the studio. So what we did is we put that podcast aside, and we went and did a news analysis that covers the occlusive news. Uh, We made sure that we had Harvey represented in the article, and he was able to comment on what's next for the company. That is found in the January issue of Nature Biotechnology. In this podcast you'll hear Harvey um, before all of this happened talking about his management style uh, how much he loves Ariad quite frankly I mean he founded this company himself in his garage and he plans to stay there until he's no longer able to work so lean back in your chair or put your earbuds in or do whatever it is that you do when you listen to podcasts because here is our first rounders podcast with Harvey Berger I don't know where you were before Santa
3: um. Sure, I was a professor, just to give you a few tidbits. I was a uh, faculty member at, uh, I trained at Yale uh-huh. uh, went to medical school at Yale, trained in uh, medicine at Yale, then was a faculty member at Yale and at Emory uh, in cardi- interestingly in cardiology and in nuclear medicine huh. and not in cancer at all and uh, went from there, went from Senecore to uh, excuse me from Emory in Atlanta, where I was a professor to um, uh, uh I had been a consultant for Sanicor while I was still at uh, Emory, and that was sort of the loop in. So that was in about 1985. And you also, well, we'll get to this, but you you have an MD too. Did
2: you ever actually practice? Oh yeah, this? yeah. I
3: was. I ran a clinical service at uh, at Emory and at Yale. I took care of patients. Sure. Huh. Sure. Great. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, we'll, yeah. well, um, let's
2: let's start with with period. So So. 2013 would be a transformative year for the company then. Inclusives approved late last year. With all these changes, how has that been reflected at Ariad?
3: Well, certainly the company has grown a lot in the uh, last uh, two years from the time it became clear that Our clinical trials were going to lead us to regulatory filings and to commercialization of iClusig. Uh, We've at least doubled in size. Um, You know, we were about 125 people uh, for 15 years, Mm -hmm. and uh, now we're over 400. Um, We were all in one building in Cambridge, the same building we were in in 1992. Um, And now we've filled that building, filled space in Lausanne, have people in the field, filled the... Uh, parts of another building in Cambridge. So first and foremost, a lot of growth in terms of people and new skill sets and just new capabilities in the company and a much more global perspective with uh, folks not only in the U.S. but also uh, throughout Europe. Right.
2: I saw that. I was looking at your website and you had, I mean, they're listed as, as offices. I don't know that that's the case, but at least people on the ground all across Europe Correct, And that's right.
3: for distribution? Uh, that's for commercialization of Iclusig. We have small sales-focused offices um, in London, Paris, Milan, um, and other countries in Europe. We have our European headquarters in Lausanne, Switzerland, uh, where we have um, over 50 people already. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll be moving into a new facility there in a couple of months because we've outgrown that space as well.
2: And I, th- I saw, I think at the end of twenty. 12. You had about 300 people and you said it's over 400 now. Correct. And that that is mostly for the commercial side?
3: No, not at all. Um, I mean, we have about 65, 70 people in the field and in commercial here in the U.S., a similar number total in Europe. Um, So the others are in regulatory clinical development um, and the infrastructure needed to support um, a global commercial business. But we've also invested in discovery research. Part of things I've really uh, insisted on is a portion of the increased growth, both in terms of uh, Dollars spent, uh, as well as headcount, um, has got to go back to the foundation of the company, which is science.
2: Have you seen a sort of change in the in the mood of the employees?
3: Uh, without question, you know the. Having uh, a product that's approved that we discovered, you know, not in license, you know, we've started from discovery through global development and now through global commercialization. So we're one of the few companies that has taken products all the way from the beginning to the marketplace and to the patient. So it's uh, created sort of a jubilant environment, a lot of hard work. Uh, Expanding is difficult, Uh, it takes a lot of effort to do this, Um, but uh, employees are so motivated. What really um, excites employees is when we bring patients who have been on iClusig uh, in to meet our our employees. Uh, We just did that about 10 days ago at a company meeting. We had Mm -hmm. about 250 employees in Cambridge and a lot of others um, uh, dialed in on a a webcast. And we brought one of the original patients who's been on iClusig for four years. Um, She was uh, within weeks of going to stem cell transplant got into the first clinical trial of Iclusig, walked into Ariad uh, a little over a week ago. You'd never know she's had uh, chronic myeloid leukemia. Looked great. So why do you do that? Why do you bring those patients in? Oh. Nothing's a better motivator for employees than seeing patients uh, and listening to them. Their words are way better than anything I could possibly say. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just motivate people. They, you know, when you meet a patient who thanks every employee of the company for saving their life, um, you know, it it really pushes folks to, you know, put in that extra effort and to know why they're doing this and why they're there at midnight, uh, you know, working.
2: So you've been
3: there since 1991, since day one, founder and.
2: Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, when companies become successful, their CEO is poached for larger companies, sometimes pharma. Are you planning on being with Ariad until you know, you no longer work.
3: Yeah, absolutely. There is not a job in the world I would take, none, absolutely nothing else. I plan to stay with Ariad as long as I can. I'll never take another job after Ariad. Um, You know, I I couldn't imagine a better job. I have the best people in the world to work with, a phenomenal leadership team that's loyal, dedicated, hardworking, really smart, and employees that are the best of the best. And uh, I couldn't imagine doing anything more important.
2: Huh, that's great. Um, okay, let's let's back up.
3: Okay, um, take me to this path of how
2: you went from academia to Senecor, and then finally to to leave Senecor and decide that you're going to found Ariad.
3: Sure. Well. Um, I started off in academic medicine. I trained in, uh, you know, I went to Yale Medical School. I trained at uh, Yale uh, in residency and fellowship. Um, I'm clinically trained uh, in medicine and in nuclear medicine. And all of my early research was in cardiology, had virtually nothing to do with oncology. Okay. So not to interrupt you, but... Um, even one
2: step back. Why were you studying those that area? Um, For
3: sure. I've I, I always was interested in science. Um, I never went into medicine with anything but a view that I was going to be a full-time academic mm-hmm. and a full-time scientist, clinician scientist. Uh, I knew I liked working with patients and I still love that, uh, but I knew I loved science uh, from the time I was in high school. Um, and there was absolutely no doubt that that's what I was going to do. I have a sort of a funny story. When I was in high school, my advisor uh, looked at me and said, you know, I think you ought to think of a different career. I don't think you're really as going to make it in science. And he was a math teacher. And um, I was dumbfounded by this. Uh, And, you know, I really didn't hit my stride doing really, really well until I got to college uh, and then medical school. But I'll never forget that he came back to me 10 years later when I was a professor at Yale, referred to me for care. And he took one look at me and went ashen gray, said, I guess you went on in medical oh, school. Man. That's a great story. <laughs>
2: what was his what was did he give you a reason why he thought you should go into some other uh
3: field? he didn't think I had the mathematical skills. He was a math teacher and he didn't think I had the mathematical skills to be a doctor. I'm not sure how you put those two together because yeah. I'm not sure that's what makes a great physician. Yeah. Uh, but that was his bias. He tried to convince me to do something else, but uh, I didn't take his advice.
2: It's, it's funny how, you know, often you'll hear that some teacher pulled a student aside and said this is what you should do and encouraged them, that was the opposite. This was orthopedic. absolutely
3: the opposite. I think it probably is the first time I made up my mind to do something 180 degrees opposite of what somebody advised, and that's been a good lesson. You know, running a company, you get pushed into uh, – you know, by all sorts of people yeah. to take the direction they think. If you follow that, you're not going to succeed. You've got to be able to take the orthogonal view and do things that folks say you can't do. Anyway – you're at Yale so I'm at Yale, I was a faculty member at Yale then I went to uh, emory um, huge cardiology program at Emory at the time I was there was the uh, heyday of coronary angioplasty in fact, Andreas Grunzig, who discovered coronary angioplasty balloon dilatation mm-hmm. of coronary vessels w- led the interventional program and we worked closely together. I did a lot of work with hi- him and his team um, and so I was very interested in ischemic heart disease and uh, Cardiovascular physiology and biochemistry, uh, developed various imaging methods to study ischemia uh, during exercise and other interventions, um, and became a consultant uh, for uh, Senecor um, in some of their antibody applications early on, one of which was in the cardiology space. And then one day I was uh, asked by the chairman of uh, Senecor, Do you want to come work here? And I thought about it for a while and I was really alone in making that decision because there were only a handful of full-time tenured academic physicians who made that transition in the Mm mid-80s. Today it's a lot easier, but in the mid-80s that was really a tough decision. Thought about it for a while, decided to do it, um, never looked back. And when you say that you
2: were doing consulting for Senecor, I'm assuming they came across you at an academic meeting or something. Sure. And approached you and said, look, we like what you're doing. We're working in this similar area. Yeah, in a area. related
3: area. Could you help us? And it was an easy thing for me to do. I didn't put a lot of time into that. Uh, but it's what made the original introduction to some of the scientists there.
2: Right. Okay. So then they come at you and say, do you want to work for us? And mm-hmm. what the, the Head of R&D. Thing? Okay.
3: You and thought about it? Thought about it for a little while, but not very long. Um, figured that it was a great opportunity. This was the era of TPA, thrombolytics. Um, The whole biotech industry revolved in the mid 80s around the use of uh, thrombolytics like TPA. Um, that was right in the sweet spot of what I was interested in. Now, Senecor was going to develop an antibody that had uh, was the most potent antiplatelet antibody uh, developed, um, a antibody that inhibited uh, glycoprotein 2B3A, um, and that was One of the things that attracted me to going there, um, I was able to bring my background in cardiology and clinical trials and research uh, to a company that was basically a diagnostics company at the time. Um, Most of what Senecor had done to that time was develop cancer diagnostics. So that's the only link to cancer. I actually presented to an FDA panel the CA-125 ovarian cancer uh, diagnostic and got it approved and still being used today. Uh, But what really got me interested was the possibility of developing the first antibody uh, for therapeutic use in cardiology, which we ultimately succeeded at, Mm -hmm. got approved, um, and along the way saw the opportunity to found ARIAD.
2: Okay, as you mentioned, not everyone was doing that at the time. So how did you break it to the, the rest of the university?
3: I went to my chairman and told him that I had this great opportunity. Uh, that I wasn't uh, planning on doing this. I hadn't thought about it, but the opportunity arose. And um, while he and a lot of other folks thought, how are you gonna leave a tenured faculty position to go to a company? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I said, look, this is a remarkable opportunity and biotechnology was here to stay. Um, And for my own research interests, it fit very well. And I just decided I was gonna do it. So I let him know, I let my department know, and I moved on in a couple of months. And you moved to Pennsylvania. Right, exactly. You know, it was a remarkable time. Um, Biotechnology was in its infancy. There were only a couple of big companies, us, Chiron, Cetus, Genentech. That was about it. Uh, There were like five or six analysts total on the street, not 50 or 100 or more. Uh Uh, There were only a couple of banks that worked in the space. um, And there weren't many, um, uh, you know, full-time academic uh, physicians who had made that transition. So it was sort of pioneering. It was uh, going over new ground, which I thought would be exciting. Um, And I learned so much so quickly because I was part of the growth of Senecor from 50 or 60 people, uh, mainly in diagnostics, to thousands when I left. And, you know, there's nothing like learning by being at the heart of that type of growth. And, you know, that was a different era than we have today because there were so few companies. But I learned to do everything. I learned business. I learned finance. I learned how to run a large, diverse scientific organization um, and was able to build on what I had practiced, you know, either in medicine or in science.
2: We would assume that Senecor
3: was actually a pretty small
2: company when you joined it. and Very small. 50 people or so. Yeah,
3: 50, 75. I forgot the exact number, but w- clearly under 100. And it was basically a diagnostics company. It was founded on the premise that you could take – monoclonal antibodies and make diagnostics that make ELISAs, make, uh, you know, various assays. And just was uh, tapping into the concept that antibodies might be therapeutics. I mean, today we take that for granted. Right. But in 1985, there were only a handful of antibodies that had ever been in therapeutic trials. Um, most of them really didn't work. Um, and there were only a few that really looked potent and potentially represented important new therapies. Um, so it was a very different era than today where we take most all of that for granted. So how many years at SantaCorp? Uh, seven or eight.
2: Seven or eight. Mm-hmm. Picked up all this knowledge, including the business side, yeah? Exactly. So how did you do that? Just by being part of management?
3: Yeah. I was one of the three or four most senior people in the company. I was very close to the CEO and to the chairman we worked uh, along with uh, one of the other senior business people the three or four of us worked as a inseparable team we were working together day and night uh, all uh, you know sleeves rolled up whatever it took we did it and um, so you know you learn a lot very quickly and i was always interested in that i had Run a development lab uh, with GE when I was at uh, Emory mm-hmm. on new instrumentation. So I had sort of a bent towards uh, commercial applications and development that was sort of a good foundation. But I learned an immense amount in those years at Senecor and, and really credit uh, my colleagues and mentors for giving me sort of the funded knowledge I needed to be able to found a company.
2: It sounds like you also picked up... Um your management style there. For true? sure.
3: I think it evolved. I mean, it clearly changed over time. You learn um, as you transition from being a physician to, uh, and a person taking care of patients to leading an organization that there are different skills that you need. In medicine, and I, I've said this often to physicians I've recruited. In medicine, you're taught to take 100% responsibility for everything related to your patient Mm -hmm. because you're absolutely responsible for that patient's care. Even when you're not in the hospital, you have oversight of that patient. Well, you can't take that sort of Approach when you're managing a large organization, and the concept of teamwork and program teams and different skill sets being brought to bigger science um, is what you learn over time, and it will, is what it takes to succeed in a company like Senecor or or an ARIAD. And where in, in that setting, you then have to be um, very reliant upon outstanding collaborators who may work for you, but work tightly with you and their uh, colleagues to really build success. You can't be, as a leader, certainly in a company like Ariad, but Senecor as well, you can't have your finger on every detail. You've got to build teamwork and trust uh, the capabilities of the senior people that you've hired, and hopefully smarter than you are.
2: Was was that something um,
3: difficult to let go, though? That that desire to sort of control every aspect? Uh, It's hard to do because you're trained in medical school to do something different than what you ultimately have to do. Mm -hmm. But the only way to succeed, and I think it's something I I pride myself on, um, is to make that transition. Um, And I think what speaks volumes about it, if you look at the management team at Ariad, the leadership team, half of the team has been with me for over 15 years. Mm. Uh, head of research, Tim claxon has been part of Ariad for 20 years. Chief financial officer, 12 or 13. Chief patent counsel, 20. You know, people, you know, a really great team that has grown up together and built the company. That's very hard to achieve.
2: Okay, let's let's talk about um, how you left Senecora to found Ariad. So this is leaving a company that when you got there was somewhat successful already, at least on the diagnostic mm-hmm. side, but right. then had success with products. And now you're moving to an entity that has a lot longer runway. Ahead For sure. As you mentioned, you're very close to the CEO of Senecora. So how did you go to him and say, look, I'm actually going to, Found a company that's going to be a cancer company on top of that?
3: Well, at that time it wasn't clear it was going to be a cancer company. It was going to be a signal transduction company, if you want to use that term. Mm -hmm. Um, His only question for me was uh, he only had two questions uh, uh, or two suggestions. Be sure you raise enough money, um, and secondly, don't make it antibodies. And I said, you know, I agree with the first, and it's completely orthogonal uh, from antibodies, it's going to be all small molecules. So I had decided that, that Ariad would be small molecule, chemistry-driven, molecular cell biology as the fundamental uh, core science as opposed to immunology, which was more the, the scientific basis for Senecor, and was going to have a major computational computer analysis approach to those disciplines.
2: But why his advice on, on no antibodies? For competitive reasons? Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. you know,
3: there were, there were only two major antibody companies at the time, two or three. And the last thing he wanted, and I had no intention of, of competing. I made it clear that wasn't yeah. what I wanted to do. I wasn't leaving to compete. I was leaving to do something totally different. Right. So his advice or suggestion was 100% consistent with what I believed and what I wanted.
2: So? You do it. You leave it. I went
3: off and did it. I spent the first year uh, building area out of my home uh, in Philadelphia, uh, putting together the scientific advisory board. Just you? Me. Okay. One year, a full year, just me. Nobody else. Um, And started uh, putting together the details of the business plan brought together some of the great scientists, uh, many of whom I would known and worked with. Many were those who I was introduced to. A lot of them are still close to the company today. I can talk about that. Um, and with them over the year, we sort of coalesced around the basic strategy um, of uh, small molecule targeting of intracellular signaling targets. Um, and then I started towards the end of that year to bring in one or two employees. I brought in actually one person um, who was um, uh, uh, Manfred Viagly, who came from Hoffman La Roche, uh, ran chemistry research at Roche, was one of the best chemists who understood biology. That was. We take it's that key. for granted today. Right. 20 years ago, that was hard to find. Um, and so Manfred joined me, and the two of us really then pulled together the next steps of the strategy and began hiring about a year into things.
2: And hiring hiring what? I mean, when did you decide that you needed to get a, a patent lawyer, if you did? When did you decide that you needed office space?
3: Um, over that year, that was part of the planning. We then I had raised um, a couple of million dollars of seed funding during the first year that kept us going, right. allowed me to do some licenses, mm-hmm. uh, sign up for some space, and, you know, do the basic things. Um, and then we went off and raised about $45 million uh, in a large private placement in early 1992. Mm-hmm. And with that, I signed a lease and started really hiring scientists and building out, you know, the first 50 people of the company, which were the scientists that were going to, you know, build on the uh, strategy that we put in place.
2: So when you, you you said you were doing this for about a year by yourself out yes. of your home. That's Pennsylvania? Yes. And then somehow you got to Cambridge.
3: Yeah. I mean, part of the question, uh, part of the strategy was, that I had to address was where do we put the company? Uh-huh. I had no you know, family or loyalty to Pennsylvania. That's where I had worked. Uh, Philadelphia was perfectly a nice place, but did not have a big uh, infrastructure for biotechnology, especially yeah. when compared to... Um, to Boston and Cambridge. I had done some of my training at Mass General um, uh, clinically, and so I knew Boston well and Cambridge and you know, saw Biogen and Genzyme and other leading companies, so I made the decision to put it in Cambridge. Also, many of our academic scientific founders were Harvard faculty and MIT faculty, and it was clear they were going to be much more involved if it was a 10-minute you know, ride to the company as opposed to getting on a plane and coming to New York, Philadelphia, or wherever. And uh, two or three of the original scientists founders were very important to us, like Stuart Schreiber, um, who's now at the Broad but was, uh, you know, a senior uh, tenured chemistry professor at uh, Harvard. And Stuart played a huge role in the early days of the company, still actively involved with us today, 20 years later, and a very good friend. Um, and he was pretty clear, you know, if it's in Cambridge, you'll see a lot of me. If it's not, I don't like flying if I can help it. And were, um, that big that first round, that $45 right. million dollar round, were
2: those Boston-based VCs as well?
3: No, the, it was actually a, a very atypical initial financing. It was done as a private placement, not as a classic VC round. Ah, okay. um, so I had uh, high net worth investors and institutional investors as well. And were they investing based on your track record at Senecor? That was a big part of it. You know, I led the development of Reapro and Remicade, um, got CA-125 approved. Senecor uh, was one of the top-tier biotech companies of the time. Um, that coupled, I think, with the new strategy. It was really different. I mean, small mo- a biotech company um, that's focused on small molecule drug discovery and computational methods um, as opposed to screening, and um, molecular cell biology. There was virtually, you know, few if any other mm-hmm. uh, companies like that. Um, and the scientific founders from academia were pretty remarkable. I mean, in addition to Stewart, uh, David Baltimore, George Palati, Bob Lefkowitz, um, Ralph Snyderman, uh, Rick Klausner. I mean, a really great group of scientists, Jim Rothman, um, who were immensely helpful. And, I, you know, their reputation and their commitment to the company and their insights coupled with uh, our team and the new area, I think all together created the opportunity. Um, You know, this this company is literally built from scratch.
2: You haven't in-licensed
3: anything. Correct. Um, Was that the plan from the get-go? Pretty much. Um, I mean, we did early in our days in-license some technologies and some tools that we've used, but no products. It's never been a product in-licensing story.
1: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow.
0: Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. Yeah. That plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
3: I mean, so many of uh, today's biotech, even cancer success stories our companies that have merely in-licensed drugs from big pharma Mm -hmm. or from big biotech companies modified them and redesigned clinical trials and have, uh, you know, built real value around somebody else's discoveries and initial work. We're very different. Um, Everything we've done has been based on science and excellence um, and internal discovery.
2: What if you came across an amazing molecule that you
3: thought, you know,
2: gosh, we could really, like you just said, bring it in-house, do the trials add value, and get it approved. Would you be
3: interested in that? I'd I'd never rule that out. Um, I mean, that's not our core business strategy, but certainly we're open to ideas that come from the outside. I don't want to give the suggestion that not invented here, and thus we sure. won't talk to anybody. Yeah. But we're not out there um, you know, trying to build the future of the company uh, by in-licensing the way so many of the large farmers are. I mean, firstly, I don't think we can compete uh, on a you know, on a a magnitude basis. And I think we've been productive with internal discovery. And, uh, you know, let's face it, the biotech industry was created around innovation, Mm -hmm. creativity, um, and discovering new things. Um, It wasn't a business development business school strategy. Right. Um, So I don't want to lose track of that. But certainly, if we found something that met your description, I mean, I wouldn't look the other way. I'd certainly be interested. But I'm not going to uh, uh, rely on that uh, to build the future of the company.
2: So you like your scientific base as you it's have it? It's
3: very strong. Tim Claxon, our chief scientific officer, has done a spectacular job um, in building an integrated collegial scientific effort. And Frank Holuska, our chief medical officer, um, as well, has built a medical, a broad-based m- medical group that integrates with the discovery and development teams. So uh, Tim is head of all of R and D, and Frank is uh, head of all of the medical activities. Together, um, have an organization that um, really is strong. As you just mentioned, your scientific base. Uh, we just I just had George
2: Junkopoulos in here, when we were talking about Regeneron, and he sort of said something similar. He said that you know the scientific base at Regeneron has been there for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Those people have worked together, and very few have left. So the brain power that they've accumulated is is retained. Exactly. You feel the same at Ariadne?
3: Identical. I've, there are a lot of similarities between George's view of Regeneron and what we've done at Ariadne. I mean, I think Ariadne and Regeneron, although Regeneron is much bigger and has more of a protein focus, but put that aside, mm-hmm. the basic foundations and strategies of building the best science, a long-term, loyal, dedicated, really cutting-edge scientific group, common between those two companies. and i you know we started about the same year um we you know both are doing things today a little differently than when we started twenty years ago but the the fundamental concept is a scientific foundation that you keep building on is an invaluable asset and it gets more valuable every year hmm.
2: so let's let's talk about it closely okay um how was it discovered and it's had a pretty short span before it was actually approved. You got approval, I think, three months early or something like Correct. that. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I don't have third quarter data. Probably no one does. Maybe you do. But first half of the year, it's brought in $20 million or something. Correct. And I've seen um, estimates that by maybe 2017, it'll hit blockbuster status, they they think.
3: Um you know, we've uh, again as part of our scientific foundation, we've published the whole discovery in Cancer Cell, um, a detailed story of how the drug was discovered um, and, and its basic biology. But it was discovered using structure-based drug design. We never screened a library. Mm-hmm. We don't screen libraries as a you know large uh, libraries to find hits. We do everything using computational methods um, and very sophisticated organic and medicinal chemistry. Uh, Same applies for iClusig. We figured out early on that the key to um, a last-generation BCR-ABLE inhibitor would be its ability to potently inhibit the one mutation that no other drug has been successful against, and that's T315I. Mm -hmm. It's a mutation that's quite common and that's completely resistant to all the available medicines. So we started there. It had to be effective against that. And then we found that if you can potently inhibit the T315i mutation, which requires a triple bond in the middle of the um, in the middle of the molecule, that you can then design the rest of the molecule to be potent against the other mutations. Um, And then we did a mutagenesis screen to try to induce millions and millions of potential um, perturbations on the structure um, uh, randomly, no bias, and then tested each of the drugs that are, um, that are available, the first-generation matinib second-generation medicines, dasatinib and nilotinib, and then panatinib, which is iclusig. Mm-hmm. And what we found is that with each of the others, resistance mutants grow out, but at 40 nanomolar concentration in vitro, nothing grows out whatsoever with penatinib. We learned early that we can achieve far greater than that concentration in vivo in patients by a lot, and then that told us that we had a pan-B-serable inhibitor. And that's really the key set of characteristics that, uh, that um, has propelled Iclusic forward and is why it has the sort of results it does in, uh, um, in resistant intolerance CML and ALL. And I think that will translate down the road into similar types of results with uh, frontline CML use as well. Um, I think that this was a surprise
2: to you. It, it certainly seemed like it was to outsiders. But the black box warning on the approval, was that a
3: surprise for Ariad? Well, we really didn't know about that direction until the very late uh, stages of the regulatory review. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it it came from the FDA. Mm-hmm. Bear in mind that in Europe, there's no boxed warning. Right. Label looks completely different in terms of those sort of warnings. Um, you know, uh, the thing we don't know... Um, because we didn't run a randomized trial, so there isn't a comparator. Um, what the baseline rate of these sort of events are in um, older cancer patients, and you know, does the drug is the drug at all causative? We don't think so, um, but it's impossible to prove unequivocally until you have data from a randomized trial. Now, the frontline EPIC trial will get us um, most of those answers. Now, those patients are younger and earlier in their disease course, uh, but Uh, will give us uh, a lot of the information we need uh, because of the uh, comparator group, which is Gleevec. Right. Um, And uh, so, yes, it was a surprise uh, until close to the very end. Um, But, you know, in real-world practice, I think – um, it has had very little impact, if any, on uptake or utilization of ICLUSIG. You know, cancer doctors are accustomed to lots of uh, safety warnings. Um, there are a lot of tyrosine kinase inhibitors with boxed warnings. There are, you know, lots of compounds, w- you know, in the field that have these sort of warnings. So, I, you know, I think the efficacy drives the utilization. Okay. We don't minimize the side effects or the boxed warning but it's been our f- impression in the field that the uh, that physicians focus f- in cancer first and foremost on the efficacy and on the potency and the depth and durability of response, which are really unbeatable mm-hmm. with ICLUSIG. Um And so I think that's what drives the utilization. And as you pointed out, we're doing really well uh, relative to consensus in the first half of the year. Uh, we're Going to do well uh, in the third quarter, and uh, you know the the medicine has been very well accepted and, and adopted by uh, physicians.
2: Right, I was going to ask if you thought that that was going to affect uptake at all. It doesn't seem like it has. And,
3: and we've really seen nothing uh, in commercial use uh, that's at all at all concerning. Nothing in commercial use. Nothing from what we've heard in any of the trials. Just nothing. Um, and so I, I think physicians are. Um, you know are aware of it, but are um, um, not being um, stopped from in you know from utilizing icloig it 's really gone well the the uptake adoption in the second line. Um, adoption after failure of just Gleevec or certainly uh, second generation medicines, adoption by uh, the community physicians has been great. I mean, that's what's driving the commercialization. Yeah. It's not as if the drug's only being used in blast phase patients by, you know, a handful of academic professors. Nothing could be further from the truth. You know, a major portion of the use is pure second line being prescribed by c- community physicians. That's what you want.
2: And 113 is where now? Phase
3: two? That's about to start its registration trial in a couple of weeks.
2: And how's that going?
3: It's ready to go. I mean, we're going to present uh, uh, results of the uh, phase one and phase two trial uh, in the next couple of days at the European Society of um, Medical Oncology meeting in Amsterdam. Uh, And right after that, we're going to uh, be kicking off the registrational trial for resistant and intolerant um, ALK positive uh, lung cancer patients.
2: And below that in your pipeline?
3: We haven't really talked about anything that's not in the clinic yet. sort of a, you know, we have several additional programs that are like Iclusic, like 113, uh, that are highly targeted pan-inhibitors of oncogenic drivers. So we have a a very clear focus, just like BCRABLE is Mm -hmm. clearly the driver for CML and ALK is clearly the driver for the subset of lung cancer, um, we see similar opportunities for pan-inhibitors of other oncogenic drivers. And that's what the next two products will be. Uh, I wanted to ask about two things. That, uh, you would probably consider these obstacles
2: in ARID's history. One was the patent fight with Amgen and Lilly over at 516. And um, can you talk about what that was like for the, the company at the time? It was rather, I mean, for not in, not in the world, but for the biotech sector, that was sort of high profile.
3: Yeah, it was very unusual to take on a big company, Lilly. Um, uh, We got pretty close. Uh, You know, it was over the um, methods of treatment uh, by inhibiting NF-kappa B. Uh, work that originated from David Baltimore's lab. Uh, was one of the key discoverers of mm-hmm. uh, NF-kappa-B many years ago. It goes all the way back to when I founded Ariad. We licensed that technology and over time made the con- reached the conclusion that developing i-kappa-B or NF-kappa-B inhibitors perhaps was not the best use of our technologies and our skill set, And we saw some opportunity. We thought the patents were clearly defensible uh, and enforceable, Uh, got a judgment in our favor at the uh, federal – both – well, at the uh, – at the – federal court in Massachusetts. It went to the uh, federal circuit. Um, and we got pretty far along there and eventually reached the point that um, it was probably too hard a battle to keep fighting. I uh, would have had to go to the Supreme Court as the next step. And um, we just didn't think that was a good good use of our resources. Yeah, Very exactly. costly. Uh,
2: the second thing, I, I can't remember, I think this was in 2008, area lost four directors. Can you talk about how you handled that internally, both with your with your staff and then maybe how you addressed it with investors?
3: Well, um, I and the, the other half of the board vehemently disagreed with the position that they took. Um, to this day, I think their view was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think history has shown probably that that was, the, that was right, given how well the company has done in the last five years. Um, it was a very difficult time. The key to dealing with it, and the reason I think I'm still in my job today, is we dealt with it head on. We, we didn't hide behind lawyers or fear or not wanting to deal with it. When they went public with their views, uh, then, that was on a Friday afternoon. On Monday morning, I did um, an investor webcast, responded to all of the allegations point by point, was absolutely open and willing to deal with the issues, and then I took questions from any investors and any analysts for as long as they wanted and dealt with it head on, and the stock went up. Really, that day? That day. By being willing to confront it and not hide behind, um, you know, it's too hard, It's you shouldn't talk about it, hope it goes away, mm-hmm. I didn't think that was the right answer. you got to stand up for what you believe in and what you think is right, especially in this case. They were really wrong. Um, and I dealt with it. And our – The board supported that. Um, Our major investors supported it. It was critical for the company. Employees had to hear me stand up for the company um, and stand up for what everybody was working on. And it was a really positive day. And from that day on, it was behind us. So it's safe to say that
2: they had a different idea of what the direction should be for the company than you did.
3: And the other directors, yes. Yeah. I, the details, I don't really want to get into at this point because I don't even remember all of them sure. at this point. It's about five years ago. But the big picture, that's a good description. Um, with the benefit of hindsight, I think you know the strategy and direction we've taken is a good one. Right. We've kept their eye on building shareholder value, very important. If a CEO ever loses track of that, they don't really have a good future. You know, It's all about building shareholder value and doing good things for patients. If you do those two things, um, you can build a successful company and
2: the webcast that you did did the dual job of also informing your staff of the way that you felt and we, where you thought the company was going and it did it boosted them in the same way it did this document.
3: big morale booster. I can assure you every employee listened to that call yeah, I, think I so. don't think there's a single employee that wasn't dialed in to listen to it and at a company meeting talked to employees um, now we were much smaller then. it was a lot easier to do probably a hundred plus people but Had I not dealt with it, uh, we would have failed. Yeah. Okay. So being in Cambridge, and it's a lot of biotech there, Mm -hmm. how are you able to recruit? Uh, The good and the bad of Cambridge is it's the best place to recruit, uh, but it's challenging to retain people. We've had extremely low turnover. Mm -hmm. So um, it's all about building a company where values, corporate values matter, where you talk about what's important. My most important message in the company is we have great products, but products are not what creates the value. It's the people. I said that as recently as a few days ago at a company meeting. It's all about the people. It's all about you know what our people do to contribute to our success. That's what gets us the value that's just like George Yancopoulos said about Regeneron, it's the brain trust, whether that's molecular biology or commercial, doesn't make any difference. It's the great people create an environment where people, where mutual respect, integrity, teamwork um, are at the heart of what we do. Those are several of our corporate values. Two other values, scientific excellence and clinical scholarship. I'm sure lots of companies have scientific excellence as a corporate value. Very few have clinical scholarship. It's something I pride myself on um, for Ariad. Well, can you sort of explain what that
2: means, clinical scholarship?
3: Clinical scholarship applies to each and every employee, not just to the head of clinical research and his team. Uh, Whether you're a sales rep in the field, or you're the head of commercial, or you're the head of molecular biology, or a physician. Clinical scholarship should be what, you, 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 what drives you. Keep the patient in mind. It's all about patients. We do this because we make a difference in the lives of patients. The clinical research that we do, um, we don't cut corners. We really focus in on um, what matters to patients and how can we prove that in clinical trials. We focus on understanding the intrinsic biology of disease and design trials that build off that deep understanding of cancer biology and cancer genetics. Um, So clinical scholarship is um, a broad term, but it applies to everybody in the company. Um, And really an important part of what keeps everybody focused on patients who are at the end of the, the people who really count here. Um, So it's a competitive environment. We've had very little turnover. As I said earlier, we've had um, many employees who've been with us 15 to 20 years, very unusual. Uh, Many of the most productive, accomplished scientists, um, 15, 20 years in the company, and love it. And it's not as if they couldn't get a new job tomorrow afternoon. Exactly. Uh, they could. Yeah. But, you know, we create an environment that's uh, um, a great place to work.
2: I wanted to ask about pricing. Occlusive mm-hmm. is about, I think, 115000 a year, which by biotech standards is
3: not unreasonable at all. Right. Um, but in the bigger picture, do you think that biotech needs to address this? I don't think it's a biotech only issue I mean high prices of cancer medicines is as much the pharmaceutical industry yeah, as I'm it, sorry as, I should you know as yeah. the biotech industry drug makers um look i I, um, I don't think cancer medicines that really work are overpriced. I think what we have to work towards is not wasting our dollars on medicines that have limited benefit um, a drug like Iclusic or a drug like one one three assuming the pivotal trial is consistent with what we know to date, these are medicines that change the lives of patients. Those medicines have got to be priced uh, the way we're talking. Mm -hmm. Um, But a medicine that improves uh, survival by two weeks, I understand the criticism. It just isn't worth it. Or, you know, increases survival by a month. It, that's not what we're here for. We want medicines, uh, you know, like Iclusig, uh, like some of the new immunotherapies, uh, like uh, um, um you know, another tyrosine kinase inhibitor that'll probably get approved soon. Medicines that really do, in fact, make a difference to patients. And I think for those, the higher prices are, are clearly going to be justified and appropriate. I've raised over a billion dollars to get Aria to where it is today. Investors clearly along the way um, have a reasonable expectation that they're going to get a return on, on those investments. And, um, you know, we've had things succeed, lots of them. We've had things fail, not too many. But um, you've got to have a balance between those so you take enough risk. Um, because if you don't take risk, you'll, I don't mean patient risk, I mean no, no. business risk, you'll never get there. So you've got to be, I think we and everyone else has got to be attuned to medicine, the pricing of new medicines. Uh, but let's pick on the medicines that don't really add much value as opposed to the medicines that really, really make a difference. 20 years plus at Ariad, uh, do you have any really memorable
2: moments or any huge obstacles that maybe we haven't talked about?
3: Well, you've picked a couple of them that have been challenging times. I I think the biggest challenge is the uncertainty in the pharma industry. Uh, Pharma companies have a model that's really not working well. Mm -hmm. Too many people, not productive enough, hard to generate the sort of uh, repeated uh, successes on a scale that's needed. Um, So they turn to partnering. Uh, Partnering may or may not help biotech companies. I mean, you give away way too much value when you partner. Um, And uh, so I think one of our biggest challenges and the thing that's worried me the most is the uncertainty and the evolving uh, backdrop of the pharmaceutical industry. The industry we see today is not what we saw five years ago, and I guarantee you won't be the industry we see in five years. That
2: reminds me, I can't believe I almost forgot to ask you this question, but that's a big part of Ariad's story, Yeah, is you have full rights to Ecclusig.
3: And, and 113, and everything other than uh, and um, Complete worldwide. And that's your plan going forward, yeah? Without question. We're, you know, in the U.S., We've, we're in Europe. We've launched. Uh, we're doing the same thing in Japan. We have a team that will be in Japan next week um, at the or the week after at the Japanese uh, hematology meetings. Um, we are running trials in Japan. We're uh, building a, a business in Japan, um, hiring a general manager of ARIA Japan mm-hmm. um, to do what we did in Lausanne but in Tokyo. So worldwide perspective.
2: And do you feel like... Um If let's say that I'm starting a company myself today, that's the way that I should do it?
3: If you have the patience and the perseverance and medicines that are good enough, yes. The challenge is all of those. You can't expect to do that in five years. Yeah. You can't do it with a marginal medicine and, you know, marginal is in the eyes of the beholder, Mm -hmm. but it that, which is not marginal, uh, iClusig, for example. I mean, there was no question we could rely on phase one, early phase one and two data to plan two years in advance that we could get that drug approved. That's not always the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, th- it's the best way to build value, but it's by far the hardest. Yeah,
2: risky, I guess.
3: Risky and very hard to do. Hmm.
2: Given your background, okay, your um, your brain power, your drive, et cetera, you could have gone just about any way. You could have been an MD. You could have stayed in academic research, and you went into industry. It sounds like you feel like you made the right decision. Do you ever wonder what those other lives would have been like? What if you'd been an MD for
3: life? Um, I thought of that. You know, I, I've often wondered what happens if I had just gone in academia been a department chairman or a dean or who knows what down the road, I mean, I probably would have had a very fulfilling life there as well. Um, I always view myself still as an MD. Mm -hmm. I never give that up because I think about problems with a medical, I mean, a full medical perspective. Um, You know, when I really practiced medicine, I wasn't just somebody who went to medical school and then gave it up. Um, I I made a great decision. I suspect I could have had a great life doing other things as well because I'm very motivated. I'm dedicated to what I do. I love helping patients. That's what this is all about. Uh, But, I, I mean, I couldn't have picked a better life than the last 20 plus years building Ariad. I mean, it's so rewarding to talk to patients, to talk to our scientists, to talk to the field reps, to talk to new, you know, our new team in Europe. Everybody's so excited about being part of a new company that's going to be making a difference to patients, being good, a good investment for shareholders. Um, and creating a great place to work. So, you don't get many chances like that in life. Yeah, so, you're happy. Very happy. Good. <laughs> Good. You know, I, I've, uh, I've had a great experience at Senecor and originally at Senecor and, yeah, and, and you know, at Ariad. Um, Ariad's been, you know, a great place uh, to build. The last couple of years have been remarkable as iClusix really taken yeah. off and Uh, You know, next few years, I'm confident 113 will make it to market. And one of my personal goals is to see the next two discovery programs in man Um, because that will show it's not just once or twice, but that we can do the same thing on a sustained, repeatable basis. And that almost no company has done. Yeah. Good luck. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, my pleasure.
2: Okay, that's it. I'd like to thank Harvey Berger for coming into our studios. I'd like to remind you that there's an update on Ariad and Klusig in the January 2014 issue of Nature Biotechnology. And I'd like to thank the Midwest Quiet for use of their music. And with that, we've reached the end of this First Rounders podcast. (music)